So even if I don't fully understand it, at least I can make interpretations about it. So it offers you a lot. This movie just really made me think about how art is controlled. I think that was the point that the movie was trying to get. Welcome back to Overtly Critical. I'm Ryan. And I'm Corwin. And this week we watched Andrei Rublev. Directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. A painter in the 15th century, Andrei Rublev, is given a painting assignment. But through his religion, his elders, and the state of the world around him, realizes his art means much more. Red carpet treatment today. Red carpet just, just saying, today. you got the nice Andre Rublev, which was your pick, your fourth in a row, damn you. And <sighs> it's our first 1960s movie. Soviet. So this yep. was not only foreign, but this was, you know, not even like Western. Right. Um, and it's our first real historical movie. This is based off a the life of a real person, Andrei Rublev, who was an icon painter in the 15th century. This isn't really in my wheelhouse. Like, it's funny because I'm a fan of history, but I'm not a fan of like historical films. Usually, it, it depends on the period. Um, it's very medieval. At the same time, we're writing notes. We're struggling to read subtitles. So I think what I'm more focused on is a lot of the like visual motifs and also a lot of the editing and the camera work a lot more. It's a period piece and it's going through someone's life. So we get this interesting structure where the movie has like kind of chapters like a book. We're going through each of them and they each have their own purpose and they, you know they each say something about Andre. And I think each of them has a lot of recurring themes in them that allows you to connect them to each other. It is almost three hours long. And from what I understand, this is actually a cut down version because the movie was heavily censored. The way it's shot and the way it's edited and also like the acting, it's not boring, at least to me. If you're not a fan of these sort of historical epics or like these older movies, you're probably gonna be bored out of your mind. If you don't like subtitles, then I don't know if there's a dubbed version. I just had to think as I was watching this, like this is what the Soviets were doing at the same time that we were portraying like Europe as like this fantastical romanticized place and um, medieval uh, Muscovite Russia in this film is just a horrible place. A big thing to mention about it, it's black and white. Mm -hmm. uh, well, mostly. There's a lot of like philosophical, not very like, uh, you know, as obvious as Dark Star made it, for example. But yeah. characters discuss a lot of, about life and death and, you know, art and what it means and religion. Uh, fate is another big thing too. Um, so I, I think the movie covers a lot of things because a lot of things happen in someone's life. It is also an incredibly immersive film. I think they do such a good job of selling the period of time that this story takes place in. There's a prologue and an epilogue, and in between those are uh, stories containing Andre. The prologue involves a group of people in like some town or something, and it's like a, someone's flying in a hot air balloon. Basically, the whole story is he flies and then he eventually falls. But when he falls, they do a match cut to a horse on the ground. Is this like guy supposed to represent the horse or something? Like I was trying to make that connection because that's I didn't notice that that's what editing that draws you to. There was a, a nice POV shot of him flying around. Mm -hmm. I kind of saw that scene as sort of like almost an Icarus story of like flying too close to God. Maybe I think you could easily have cut that out. Maybe like I'm missing something huge about it. Then when we jump into Andre's story, he first meets that jester guy. Our three sort of um, characters in that scene are Andre, Kirill, and Danila. Yeah, Dania. Daniel. They stumble upon this, like, I don't know what it is. It's just like a... It's a barn full bar. of people, yeah. and you have a pretty drunk jester-type guy just 
going around doing this wild dance and the song. It, it illustrates the life of peasants really well. Like a very Soviet perspective, honestly. But this is also where our like first scene of like art being censored and controlled is Right. He gets arrested by authorities who break his drum, uh, and he's dragged off screaming, and he comes back later in the movie. I'm pretty sure there was, like, only one girl in that whole scene. Maybe it was the authorities that came in, or maybe it was somebody else that, like, said something to that girl in passing. God bless you, girl, or something like that. And there's only, like, three or four obvious, like, women characters in the movie, because there's obviously elements in it that discuss women's place in the world I would Russia. be very interested to see like a real feminist film critic analyze this movie because it's not really sexist the way women are interpreted I think it's pretty fair to just how women were treated in the middle ages which yeah. is not well part of it was filmed with a wide angle lens because there was especially when the gesture was dancing there was this really strange distortion right yeah there was I saw that too in the wide angle lens it draws your attention to the middle and sort of the outer parts of the frame kind of warp off I don't I never saw that again in the rest of the movie the second section is Tyophanes the Greek. It's 1400 to 1423 the film takes place. And in this one, um, we see Kirill again as he meets uh, Theophanes, this old guy, who we find out is also a painter or was a painter mm -hmm. at some point. When Kirill was describing Andre's paintings, he talked like about how beautiful the color was and how perfect it was. And at the time I wrote this down, I was like, the film's in black and white. Because we never actually see the paint. Actually, do we get like one shot of the painting? We get like describes? a, it's kind of like, it's not framed yeah. totally. But it's, the point of that scene is not so much the painting itself, but it's more Kirill's reaction to the painting and his emotions towards it. What happens is Kirill basically like loses his faith, yeah. partially because I guess he's almost jealous of Andre's gift for painting. Which we find this out later. He doesn't give his full motivations, but he basically like storms off of their monastery and leaves and curses everyone. Right. Which is very important because at this point Andre was going to go with Kirill to Theophanes to learn how to paint. But at this point in the story, Andre is very much alone. He's embarking on this with, like, some apprentice named Foma. Yeah, who sticks with him for a while. I, I thought it was interesting. This scene in particular, his conversation with Theophanes. I feel like I'm fucking butchering all these names. We might be. It's fine. Apologies to, you know, any Eastern European people. I found his conversation interesting because their conversations about painting are actually about more. Where, mm -hmm. I mean, you talk about how later it's a little bit more about religion, but I feel like in this one there's a lot more philosophical discussion. Fate, which they get into later, like the idea of like you're born with these skills and if you have an obligation to use them or not. That's right. Which um, was brought up a little bit in this. After, some years after um, the the building that they paint gets destroyed and Andre takes his vow of silence. Kirill begs him to speak and like says, even though like I wasted my life and I'm gonna die, please paint because you have a duty to paint. Andre is basically, he's been asked because he's a pretty well-renowned painter at this point. Mm -hmm. He's asked to paint uh, this like, what is it, a cathedral or something? Um, I think cathedral. Right. So his painting is called The Last Judgment, and it's kind of like his hero's journey. He has to leave his hometown, and he's sent off. At first, I wrote down, like, oh, they're, they're using really uh, good use of candlelight and fire in the movie. Like, it's, like, cool lighting. But then I was like, I think fire is a theme in the movie. So he's basically sent off to do this painting, and he, I believe he goes off with that Foma guy, um, and he's also with Theophanes before 
mm-hmm. which is where we get to that river conversation. I liked that conversation a lot because it's this great kind of um, argument or debate between this old cynical man and this very optimistic young man in Andre, at least at this point in the film. Yeah, I kind of gather that like Andre was more human. He had more faith in humanity. Mm-hmm. Whereas at this point in the story. True. That, that's interesting where Theophanes did not. They almost switch at the midpoint after the right. cathedral was burned where Theophanes comes back to Andre in like a vision because at this point he's long dead. Yeah. Um, and he's almost like trying to help Andre keep faith. Mm-hmm. But that's when Andre takes his vow of silence and kind of goes into his very right. emo-depressive state for the rest of the movie until the end. They were often in frame with each other, but they weren't looking at each other. Mm-hmm. A couple times they were like back-to-back, but also not actually like you know one was behind the other. So they were always visible together, but very little did they ever make eye contact with each other. But I think it's just an interesting way to film a conversation, especially when there's these two you know, competing sides that can't agree with each other. Andre and his friends are by the river, and he sees like these people running, goes investigate, and it's this pagan celebration of fertility where all these people are running around naked in the water, and he kind of gets grabbed by these villagers and tied up to like a uh, post in like mockery of the like the crucifixion, right. and then gets kissed by a naked woman, but actually later they're going down the river in their boats and he sees that this woman and her husband or someone are running in fear of these uh, these horseback riders. Yeah, they're trying to escape. And, you know, we know what they're going to do to her. And she escapes in the water, but Andre doesn't help her. In, like, one of his most important character moments, kills one of the invaders who's taking a young girl upstairs to do, you know, and he takes an axe to his head and kills him. Um, and I almost saw that as like him, in a way, redeeming himself. But then he ends up feeling guilt for that. He does. This is what this is the act that actually makes him take his vow of silence. That that first woman that he sees, it's not the one that approached him later, but he sees one. He looks at her, and then he pers- he kind of pursues her, or he gets curious. Hmm. His pants light on fire at the same time. <laughs> All I could think of was like liar, liar, pants on fire. Probably the most interesting thing to me about the movie. We kind of like skip over seeing him actually paint the cathedral. Mm -hmm. We see the scenes where he's painting it, like it's under construction or under, you know, he's working on it. But other than I think one point where he smears shit on the wall, we never. Was that shit or paint? I I didn't. I think it was shit. I did not understand that scene. All right. So this is another interesting thing with that girl that he ends up saving later. She like walks into this room as this guy is reading like uh, the very misogynistic Bible verses mm-hmm. and this guy's like keep reading it and then the girl's like but she goes up to the wall and Andre is there he's got like he looks very guilty because like his hand is like covered in yeah. whatever he threw on the wall and she just looks at it and starts crying mm-hmm. I don't know what yeah I don't know what that was about and then like he leaves and then she follows him I think that if you look at this movie and you interpret this as a pro-religious movie you are completely missing the point because to me, this is a very neutral depiction yeah. of religion. It's much more just the fact that in that time period, religion was an inescapable part of people's lives. It dominated everything. The, the main like point of this movie is this discussion about faith, but it's also about art being controlled by faith right. and also what does art mean to faith. And I think that's why this movie was so censored, because it's not taking a stance. The Soviets don't know what mm-hmm. to do with it. The Americans don't know what to do with it. It shows how 
complex religion can be and its implications. Mm -hmm. We're like, oh, like look at how much beautiful art we have from this. But also the artist itself is suffering because of his beliefs in it and he thinks he has to punish himself. Part two of the movie, we're at part two, which I, I think literally all four of us watching feel like the beginning of part two could have been the ending of part one, mm -hmm. especially considering how part two is longer. Part two begins with Raid, right, where is, the city of Vladimir is burned and pillaged, mm -hmm. and the cathedral and the Last Judgment are destroyed. Yeah. That's the midpoint of his story. That should have been where part one ended. It also is a yeah. big action scene to open part two. Andre is kind of helpless. He's pretty much, and this goes into religion, he's kind of just formed by the world around him. He, you know, he has his art and he can do with it what he wants to, but at the same time, there's all these forces around him that he can't control. And I think this is one of them. This is the Tartars that are doing this, but mm -hmm. there is a Russian guy who I yeah. probably should know from another point in the movie. He's okay. the brother of the right. prince who has hired Andrew. Andrew! Andrew! Andrew Rubilev! Uh, he is the brother of the prince who hires Andre to paint The Last Judgment. At this point, it, historically, in Russia, they were constantly more with each other as well as other people. His, his midpoint moment for his character where um, everyone's invading and he sees that girl and someone's taking her and he, obviously we explained all this already. He saves that girl, but then he starts to feel really bad and the only people that survive, I believe, are him and that girl. He sees Theophanes. Mm -hmm. in what we can assume is a vision. They have this discussion, which I guess we already kind of talked about this. Yeah. It's a four-year time jump. Back in the village that he originally started, the yeah, one, the one that Kirill yeah. left originally, mm -hmm. he's only with that woman to remind him of his sin. Um, the townspeople like mention her as the dumb She actually girl. runs off with the Tartars. <laughs> and then he, he loses her and he's like, actually, you know what, whatever. So when Andre comes back, there's like a famine going on, and we see that um, Kirill has come back. God's kind of cringe, not gonna lie. Oh my god. That's just Kirill in that moment. They're all sitting, they're all inside like, eating, going through their rotten apples, because it's a famine, they're like, what can we even eat? And Kirill is in there. I think he's already received his punishment for leaving, which is he has to, he has to copy the Bible five times, 15. or 15, 15 times. 15 times, and he's already pretty friggin' old. The scene that tells us that the Tartars are coming, is he's staring at a wall, and there's a pinhole in the shutter in the window that makes a camera obscura, and we see it upside down, horses walking on the wall. I just thought that was the coolest shit ever. You know, I completely missed that moment because I was looking down the red note. A lot of part two is actually taken up by not Andre, but a new character just named Boris, who is the son of like a bell maker. And after this plague, his family has died, and he kind of like gets himself in this position of saying he will show these people of a town how to make a, a giant bell for them because his father taught him the secret of bell making. I think you actually understood the entire um, the entire segment with Boris's story more than I did. Andre is part of it, but he's more of an outsider. He's like watching over it. And so, especially with what happens in the end, his father never actually told him how to make a bell or something like that. Like, that scene yeah. was garbage. Um, but this kid Boris building this bell or setting all this up was very similar to Andre's first painting, where we, except in this case, we actually saw how they made it. But, I love that, just the entire depiction of building this bell. Yeah. It's so freaking cool. I, I had no idea how they 
made bells back then. It takes literally everyone like in the town to do it. It's so cool. Andre finally breaks his silence, basically agreeing he will continue to paint. He's like, you'll build bells and I'll paint paintings. This is the moment that restores like his faith in his craft. The tension when they are lifting the bell and they're gonna first test it to ring. Yes. I did not know that a single shot of a rope could make my ass that tight. These princes or kings or whatever they are, this royalty comes in, they're gonna see the bell, and uh, you had to look this up, but they're gonna kill everyone if this bell doesn't work. Yeah. And you can tell by the kid, I was already starting to think, did he really teach you the secret of bell making? The first scene I see him with, I'm thinking, you're just saying that, because you, 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 need, you need an opportunity. Right. And knowing at the end, that he didn't have any of this yeah. for his father makes it like it's like oh my god it's an even better accomplishment that way I, I don't know how entirely I feel about the way this movie ends the first time we see color I liked what happened because we're looking at like firewood which is yeah. the most bland shit ever so you were like is that color? It's a great way to like bring you in because it's not like the most saturated thing possible I generally didn't first. even realize that like they chose to put this movie in black and white I think the entire point of this scene and what they're doing in the epilogue is to not only <clears throat> sell the scale of the painting and the significance of this painting to Andre um, by only giving it to us in shots, as the, it's these moving shots that give us this perspective of, like you said, we're looking at a painting bit by bit. We don't really see him doing much painting really at all in the movie. It's fun that we actually get to see just a whole dedicated, it must have been six or five or six minutes with a really nice score and like mm. in all their colored glory, we finally get to see that after we've seen all the work he put into it. I notice a lot of the things in the movie come from his paintings. There's a lot of horses in the movie and there's a couple swans in the movie, both of which are prevalent in his paintings. And then we end on this shot of the horses in the rain, but in color now, um, I think almost connecting us to the modern day, or well, when they made this modern, all those centuries back to when the movie takes place. I almost saw the horses as being that. like the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, maybe. That's what I thought. Not only like was the fire interesting in terms of like how there's a lot of candles everywhere and they use a lot of words that have to do with fire, like burning and stuff. They burn a village. They have to burn the clay. His pants light on fire. There's a lot of fire in the movie. Oh, yeah, and obviously when they burn the village, his painting burns. Um, but then, yeah, rain also just washes away the stuff at the end. I really liked this movie. I was really taken mm -hmm. by the visuals and the story and the characters and the, the meaning behind its story, and I really, I, I'm gonna rewatch this at some point. They play with things visually in the movie. I like some of the way they shot things, some of the camera mm -hmm. work is good. Obviously a lot of the visual motifs and things that recur in the film, I thought, were an interesting touch, even if I don't fully understand it. Um, at least I can make interpretations about it. So it offers you a lot. I think a lot of people, especially in our modern day, criticize the Middle Ages as like, oh, all art was just for the church, it was just for religion. Um, and some people see that as mean that the art was like hollow or it's a lesson because of that. It just was the fact that the church controlled everything. If you were going to paint, you were doing it for the church. Art has always been control. Even this movie was something that was censored, but even in our modern day, art is often censored. If you want to make a movie with the military, it's basically got to go through the Pentagon, and if they don't like it, they're not going to fund it. Even at the same time in America, yeah. Vietnam movies like the Green Beret were getting military approval, and that became propaganda. Corporate um, media franchises dominate the art sphere. Marvel, Star Wars, DC. This movie just really made me think about how art is controlled, and I think that was the point that the movie was trying to get. Hi, everyone. Welcome to... 
or welcome back to the sounds of Andrei Rublev with Dan. I'm going to start with the opening credits. Sound that comes through is a really cool song and very dark. Makes me think that this is going to be a fucked up film, which it kind of turns out to be. So in part one, uh, there is a short interval in the drunk singing scene with the jester uh, where the guy who was singing kept talking without mouth movement for about six seconds. I think that's more of a post-error. The effects on the voice acting should have been recorded fully dry and then had slight reflections added later on. Now, there is beneficial stuff to that. Because if you're actually in the room, you want to make it sound like the room and not like you're in a big hallway. When you're outside and there's barely anything that would reflect anything, like, say, trees, trees aren't going to reflect it. Kind of a bad recording on their part. I wish they had redone it. So the Jesus story and the crucifixion scene has a chorus that betrays a great sense of wrongdoing with how notes are screwed up and played at different times. It's also a good fear factor that what the Greek was telling was true in a serious sense that made me think about how, say, like, Jesus gave humans change and they sort of betrayed him for it. The term analog horror ran through my mind for a lot of this film. The naked torch cult witchery scene. The music in this scene drives me to question what horror can truly be. It brings to mind the classic horror elements like, say, low-sounding instruments and dramatic pauses, but then combines that with mental insanity, if mental insanity was a music genre. Metal objects being hit, both very quick and very slow, uh, screaming out dissonance, and everything else in between that kind of makes me want to peel my skin off. Now for part two of the film. So the scene with the Tartars, with you know the prince waging war on the city of Vladimir, has the constant war fighting, along with what sounds like a vuvuzela. It's like a long horn. In modern times, they're sort of plastic, because you can be, and they're like, Hoh. This instrument, combined with many others, can give off a, like a war theme, like when you charge. What makes it cool is that it's being played constantly with small peak pauses, uh, and it adds to the overall scene's like savagery of the moment. And one of these guys is stabbed in the throat by one of the attackers, and he's laying there, and his throat's like, his throat movement coincides with the saw that happens to just be next to him wiggling, and it kind of made me assume that that was the throat doing the noise and not the saw, and that tricked me for a moment. It was kind of funny. The church raid scene, that chorus was messed up. Brings a good, chaotic theme to what would be a house of order. The hits of the church bell as Andre is talking to the Greek kind of makes me question, is he mentally stable? The guy he's talking to previously died and are these distorted unharmonic bell hits kind of like an audible key 95 percent of all the sound effects in this film are perfect fire the metal chains and even like the giant bellows in the scene where they go to forge the bell it's all in correct time it's ducked well and generally mixed well overall and i that actually made me smile like outside sound effects aside from the water give the feeling that they're outside inside halls you can hear the resonance of people's voices as they're talking. Perfect. So the bell casting scene was amazing. This bell, in my opinion, takes sort of a sign of life. The pre-swinging of the bell, the hinge sound as well, kind of gave a really good feeling of suspense. Everyone's like, if that bell didn't ring, everyone would have died. The ending chorus gives both a feeling of, say, in my opinion, a holy presence and an evil presence. Uh, there has always been these sides and how, like, 
Andre's real-life paintings show and tell a story of religious history, but it's based on controlled art. Like, all the chorus is doing is, like, it's distorted, it's unharmonic, screaming, and then it ends with thunder. It's kind of a great way to tie it all together and talk about the life that was Andrei Rublev. Take care, everyone, and back to these guys. So my lesson for this movie, structuring the movie in chapters, is just a cool idea. It really emphasizes that every sequence, which is what the movie's broken into, has importance and has purpose. So if a scene doesn't reveal character or push along the story in a meaningful way, then there's no point. By breaking up the chapters specifically and even naming them really makes you focus on what is the point of the scene in the context of everything else. Because um, some movies do part one, part two, especially for chronicling a whole life. You're going to need those time jumps, and this is a chapters are a good way to do that. I hadn't thought about that, but this is a movie you could almost sit down and approach like a book. My lesson is something I've been thinking a lot about in general because um, we're taking a class called Camera in Motion, but this movie Steve. is. This, Steve Rashawn, this movie uses camera moves really, really well to give us um, subjective and objective perspectives for the story. I really noticed a lot of dolly shots, like follow characters as they're looking into something or like following someone else. Andre goes to see the pagans who are celebrating. The camera follows him into that. Yeah. Or we also get that POV at the beginning of the balloon. And one of my favorite moments was actually when we see the Grand Prince who is working with the Tartars to burn Vladimir. We see like a close-up on his face looking around at the destruction that he's caused. There's also a lot of objective shots of just armies of like showing the scale of them. This movie really made me notice how you can use camera moves and camera, different camera shots to sell emotion and a certain character's perspective on something. Boris was maybe still looking for the clay he was like, him and that other kid were like on this mountain and they walk out and the, the camera pans with them. But then there's, at really perfect timing, a horse and carriage like going that way and then the camera follows that. So yeah. I think there's a lot of good timing as well with the camera moves or it uses it kind of like slacker actually. It uses the camera moves to kind of follow the motion to something else and transfer the scene somewhere else as a good transition tactic. And off. God. Hi, welcome to Funny Notes. The title is Director. He's basically the same person. All people named Andre are the same. Concrete wall. Gaily seductive. He's lying on that bench, a little gay. <laughs> Side torch, perfect penis length. Oh, what? Corwin, you're supposed to stay here, you bitch. Big book. It's Corwin friendly. Well, you can see the words well, you know, because he's blind. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! I love God. Give me God's shit. Oh, it's my life to get God's knees. That's the point of this movie. Now we don't have to talk about God ever again. The Great Wood of Russia, also refer to the Great Wall of China. Anti ants and pants. No. Don't get a woman. They're too clingy. Yeah. Ha ha ha. I wish someone didn't have a girlfriend in this group. The minefield. Survive or f What? <laughs> yeah, you got me too. <laughs> then part two happens where the actual shit happens. 
exposition than war. You know part two? Just watch part two. You don't even need to watch part one. Uh, people hate modern art. They want them to live on breadcrumbs. Cat? Cat symbolism? Oh, film majors, I, I want you to take apart the symbolism between dogs and cat in the crucible. Five page paper, minimum 3,000 words. Girl smart, huddling for warm people. All of the dead f***ing corpses. I'm f***ing stupid. But, he's, but she's smart because she's getting warmth. Russia, no law. Pets fight. God damn it. Dumb girl. It fits well with Dan. Bruh, a funny note for one moment would actually insult me. <laughs> I brought back the curse win. I mentioned clumsy one time. Oh no. And it just spirals. This this person, this Corwin, comes to the table and saying, Man, I'm real clumsy today. And then knocks over water. You can't make this up. Bye. Yeah, alright. That's all I needed for you. Bye bye, man. Bye bye. Classic Russian. You know what I fucking say. <laughs> my best tool is my head. And last note, men are weak. Hashtag girl boss. This has been funny notes. Um, I'm gonna have to reevaluate my life choices. So we both liked Andre Rublev, but it's time to pick something else, and hopefully it's not his movie again. I really hope it's not. So. Uh, I get to pick this time, so you get to pick the box. What's one and what's four, and I get to pick. Uh, we're gonna make that one and that four. Oh my god, you're a dick. What's two and three? <laughs> Figure it out, fucker. Oh, god. <laughs> I'm picking, what was that, one? That was one. Sure. I will say, though, I'm very excited to see Heavy Traffic, another Corrin movie, the fifth one in the row, because I think I think he's uh... bought off or something. <laughs> This, yeah, is, this our is our first, first animated, animated movie. Um, this is also, I believe, actually an X-rated film. So this is from 1973. So we have four 1970s movies this season. It's like our new 1990s. Okay, so um, goodbye this week from us and Corbin's Tunic. See you next time. Bye-bye.